If you would turn in your Bibles, we'll be turning to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and reading verses 15 through 23. 15 through 23. This particular passage in Colossians, if you have titles in your Bible, will say the preeminence of Christ. How Christ is preeminent. And so beginning in verse 14, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the author of Colossians, which is Paul, is speaking about Jesus Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And the question that we are going to answer this morning is what do we mean that Jesus Christ is fully human? Is Jesus fully human? In a previous message, we showed how Scripture taught that Jesus is fully God. And we pointed out five things in that previous message. First of all, that Jesus Christ is part of the Godhead. We say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Secondly, that Jesus Christ is the same essence and nature as all the members of the Godhead. They are all made out of the same stuff. There's no difference between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, we said Jesus Christ cannot be separated from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. I cannot cut them into pieces. I can't say the Father's over there and Jesus Christ is over there and the Holy Spirit is back there. They are together all the time. I cannot take anything to separate them. And fourthly, we said that Jesus Christ is co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Between the three of them, one of them isn't the head. It isn't God the Father. It isn't God the Son. It isn't God the Holy Spirit. They are all co-equal 
to each other. And then the fifth thing that we taught was that Jesus Christ is co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit. They both had no beginning. They both are today. They both are from everlasting to everlasting. They are always going to be there together. But today, we will look at scriptures to show that Jesus Christ is truly a man and is human. And the first question we're going to ask is that, what does it mean to be called human? And there are some questions about this in our culture today. Some people believe that man is the product of an evolutionary process. And if I go to the Museum of Natural History in New York City, I can go to a hall of human origins. And in that hall, they have these four displays, kind of like dioramas of the evolutionary stages of man. Now, this is an evil thought in many ways because when people begin to think that human beings have evolved over the millennia, all of a sudden you begin to think certain races are not as fully evolved as other races. And we have seen this in our history where the Germans thought that they were superior to other races and they thought that the Jewish people were a race that should be exterminated. This is a result of evolutionary thinking. That is not a very good picture of who man is. And then there are some who we would call humanists there are people who view human beings as basically good. And the bad that happens in this world needs to be taught not to be bad. And so they work very hard on making things right. And so we have humanist organizations. And they look to use rational means science to make things better, to solve human problems. And you probably see this today, that we want to use science to cure disease. We want to use science to correct the problems that we see. Our science is advancing the human race. And that is the mindset of many people. But then the third group of people says it's all about power. The most powerful people are in control. And so if you have power, and that's what human beings are all about, you can make other people work for you. Just think about slavery. Just think about poor conditions, working conditions in some places. And you can send your young men, and maybe some young ladies, to war. And you just send them off, and you don't care how many of them die because you have some more that you can bring up. 
And throughout the ages, we've seen where young men have been sent to war, useless wars from our perspective. And that's because it was all about power. That's what the human race is all about. We're a social organization where the powerful people control what's going on. Is this all that man is? Is that what it is to be a human being? Just a product of an evolutionary path? Just a group of a species trying to get better? Is that what we are? Is it just that we live in a place where the most powerful people do what they want to do? The Bible gives us a very different picture of what a man is. We read in the very beginning of Genesis, in Genesis 1.26, and God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so what does it mean that we were made in the image or the likeness of God. And I'll start out by telling you what it doesn't mean. As humans, as male and female, as God created us, we are not God. We are not part of God. We are not many gods. God hasn't made us to be a god. We are made in the likeness of God. So in some ways, we look like God. There are similarities between us and God. And the question that we're going to ask is, how are men and women similar to God? Theologians like to talk about the attributes of God. And then they like to talk about some of these attributes are reflected in men and women. Today we're going to not talk about those attributes necessarily. We're going to talk about humans. What makes humans different from every other creature that lives on this earth? We'll talk about three of them. The first one is humans are rational creatures. Humans can think. We can use logic. We can learn skills. We can determine what we are going to do. We have advanced reasoning skills. I have a cell phone. Somebody knows how that thing works. I don't, but somebody does somebody thought very carefully, how are we going to design a little computer, which is also a phone that you can carry around in your pocket? Man is able to reason. 
they can figure out the complexities of our economic system, how to get all that food into your grocery store so that when you go there, they have what you want to eat. That is a huge process. I don't understand how they do it, how they get it from the manufacturer or from the farm into the store so that they always have all this stuff. Man is able to reason, think, plan, calculate. We have a written language. And we see written languages way back in ancient history. All of a sudden you see some chicken scratch looking things. So it turns out it's Sanskrit and it's a language. We read. We write. We do mathematics. Think about things. Do you ever think about things? Some people like to think about what is the meaning of life? Oh, what do I believe in? Is there a God? People think about things, don't they? They like to study history. What did people think about 200 years ago? What did they think about 1,000 years ago? We have information that allows you to do that. And you can think about those things. You can think abstractly. What am I saying? Abstractly? Yes. What does it mean to be free? What does liberty look like? Those are abstract concepts. And we can relate to an unseen God. Isn't it amazing that there are three major religions in this world that God is never portrayed? Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. None of them will ever show you a picture of God. Because their God is unseen. We can think about an unseen God. And all of these human attributes reflect the image of God, which is not seen in any other creature. I can't look at my dog and think that my dog is thinking about freedom, except he wants to get out and run around. He's not thinking about what does freedom really mean to me. Your dog doesn't think that way. We read in Hebrews, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus Christ was a rational person whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Jesus Christ is like us. He is a rational person. But secondly, what are humans like and no other creature is like? We can choose things. We have a moral perspective. We can choose what we are going to do and what we're not going to do based on something that 
uh, is above us, some rules or regulations. Now let's give an example. I can train my dog not to go into my bedroom. But I know that as soon as I leave the house, if my bedroom door is open, that dog is going to scoot up there and jump on my bed because it's nice and cozy. As soon as I step in the door, that dog's off that bed. He's down there greeting me. Can I hold my dog morally responsible for the things that that dog does when I'm not there? And I say, you have done this again and punish the dog and expect that the dog is going to obey the next time. That dog doesn't feel guilty at all. That dog's just being a dog. Now, if I told my 10-year-old son, don't go in my bedroom, and he does, can I hold my son morally responsible for disobeying what I told him, what I had told him to do? Yes. He is going to feel guilty. And that's what we are. We are guilty. And it's amazing that we have a sense of morality. Since the beginning of recorded history, there are records of rules and regulations. Some of the earliest writing that we have is regulations about grain harvests and regulations about property rights and all kinds of regulations that if you steal from somebody, this is going to happen to you. It's built into us as human beings to have a sense of morality. As Christians, we have regulations and rules. We know what God expects to us. He has given us his word, the Bible. And so we know what those regulations are. But for a non-Christian who has no idea what's in the Bible, where do they get their sense of morality? Sometimes they rely on government laws and regulations. But even those people, even those people who, who live as criminals still go home and they take care of their families and their children. We know what is right and wrong. The third thing that we have as human beings is that God has given us a responsibility and a responsibility that no animal will take. No creature has taken this responsibility. We read in Genesis 1, verse 28, and God blessed them, that's Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and 
Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then we read in Genesis 2.15, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And we as Christians are to reflect the, the character of God by caring for his creation. And so we as Christians are very careful in how we practice farming, how we do our business. But this is not only Christians who take care of this world. We see that for non-Christians, this responsibility is becoming distorted. There's a whole group of people that are worried about global warming right now. They have a distorted view of what it means to take care of this world. They are doing what God has created them to do. They are doing something that was part of the creation mandate. Except they're focusing on this world and not the creator. There are people who will do anything to save an animal. I just talked to somebody who is working at a farm that rescues chickens. A chicken rescue farm? There's one in Sussex County. I can tell you about three places in Sussex, Sussex County that have rescued animals. And there are many more than I know of. These people have placed a very high emphasis on creatures rather than the creator. Or we have all of these people who want to establish justice. And they are built in as human beings. They want to have justice to reflect the justice that God has given to us, the righteousness. But they get distorted, don't they? Social justice, racial justice. Because they have been created with a desire for justice, God has created us that way. That makes us as humans because that's the way God has made us. So are we different than animals? Yes. And unfortunately, when we see the behavior of men and women, it seems like the image of God has been lost. And I agree, it is lost in some way. But I would say that the image of God, when I look at each one of you, is marred by sin in this world. And there is a question out there. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, did that remove the image of God from man? Did humans lose their image? And I would say no. It's just been made blurry and fuzzy. And oftentimes when I look at somebody, the image of God is totally out of focus. I don't see much of it in there. People still make moral choices. Just think about it, a scam artist 
goes home to his family and takes care of his children. The gang members go to great lengths to protect fellow gang members, even though at the same time they're selling drugs and stealing whatever they can get their hands on. But they have a code of ethics. Sinful people place their own desires over the environment or over other people than from from they place their own desires over what God desires for them to do. But God wants people, men and women, who he created to more perfectly reflect this image. And so what did God do? We read in Galatians 4 verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Jesus came willingly into this world filled with those people who were fuzzy and blurry images of God. And what did he say? He saw that by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, but by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus came as that obedient man, that obedient human being. Jesus is the clear, undistorted, perfect picture of the image of God. And let's talk about what that image is for a few minutes. What did Jesus look like? Jesus, first of all, was the visible image of God. He lived briefly here on earth. And today he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But Jesus was born. And when his mother Mary and his father, earthly father Joseph took that little screaming baby who had just been born and looked him over, as people are apt to do with newborns, he was a perfect physical specimen. That's how Jesus was. And then when he lived in this home with Mary and Joseph, he matured and he had no intellectual defects. He must have been a brilliant child. He learned quickly. He was a genius, we would say. And then personality-wise, Jesus was perfect. Can you imagine a child that's perfect? I, I just can't hardly imagine what that would be like. Think about your own families. If there was a perfect child in your family, I think that might be a problem, right? A perfect family, a perfect brilliant child would be a tremendous challenge to that child's parents. But that was Jesus. He didn't have any intellectual defects. He didn't have any physical defects. He was fully human. He was the way that a human 
was in the beginning. He was like Adam before the fall. And then Jesus had a very close relationship with his heavenly father. We read throughout the Gospels numerous times where Jesus was praying to his Father. And I'm sure the Gospel writers didn't write about every time he prayed. But John, in particular, just uh, wrote a whole chapter of Jesus' prayers. John 17. Take a look at it sometime. And Jesus was this wonderful specimen of a human. But secondly... Jesus Christ is the standard of true humanity. The Gospels were written to show us what a man made in the image of God without being blurred out a fuzzy person, a fuzzy image, would look like. And we are to use Jesus as our model of how we are to live on our day-to-day basis And though it is impossible for us to be perfectly like Jesus, we don't have the physicality, we don't have the mental acuity, but we can think about what Jesus would do, how Jesus would behave in the situations that we find ourselves in. And we can read the scriptures and incorporate how he thought to conform it to how we think. And then thirdly, Jesus was that visible image of God while he lived here on earth. Jesus is the standard of true humanity. We see that Jesus Christ, as a man, gives those redeemed great hope. We ultimately will become like Jesus. We'll be conformed to Jesus. And when somebody looks at us, they will not see that fuzzy, that blurry picture of an image of God. They will see a true image of God. We will be restored. We will be like Adam. We will be like Eve before they fell. We will have that perfect body in some ways we will have the brain that we've always wanted. We will be able to have a relationship with God that Adam and Eve lost. And so our imperfect, defective bodies will be perfected. They will be reconstituted, we might say. They're going to be put back together without all those defects. Our desire and our tendency to fall into sin, that will be taken away. We will no longer want to sin. We will no longer even think that I could sin. That moral aspect is going to be changed. There is no morality in heaven because everyone will be in conformity with what God wants them to do. We will not want to choose between obeying God and disobeying God. We will always obey God. That is going to be our moral compass. Whatever God wants me to do, I will do. No questions asked. But we're not going to become robots. 
we have dispositions. We have personalities, don't we? Life would not be interesting if there weren't personalities and there weren't dispositions. That's what makes people interesting. Just sit in an airport and watch people go by or sit in the mall and watch them go by. There are some really interesting people out there. Those people, if they are Christians, are still going to be interesting in heaven. They will have their dispositions sweetened. They will have their personalities perfected. But they will still have dispositions. They will still have personalities. It's going to be wonderful. And so those people that you enjoy being with because they have that pleasant, outgoing personality are still going to have that pleasant, outgoing personality in heaven. And those people who are those thinkers and those people who are those tinkerers, they are still going to have aspects of who they are in heaven. That's what God is going to do for us. Jesus Christ was fully human. He was the perfect image of God. He is the standard of what a true human would be like. And he is the one that gives us great hope because we know that we are going to be like him someday. We're not going to be a mini-God. We are going to be a perfected human being. But why? Why is Jesus here on earth? What was he doing here? And that's the question I want to leave with today. And first of all, the reason Jesus was here is that it was prophesied that he would be here. It was prophesied that a man was going to be born, starting all the way in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell, God promised Adam and Eve something. He said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. What he's saying, someday a baby is going to be born who is going to bruise the serpent's head, that animal, that creature, which really wasn't a creature, but was the devil who caused you to sin. Already in Genesis, Adam and Eve were looking forward to that day. Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14 said, Behold, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A baby is going to be born of a woman. It was predicted in scriptures, and there are many scriptures. Daniel wrote about it. I saw in a night vision, he said, and behold, with the clouds of the heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. A man was going to come, and he was the ancient of days and was presented. And so Daniel saw the Lord 
coming, a son of man. And so Jesus was predicted to be a human being. He was predicted to be born as a man. And the apostles, they write about Jesus as a man. We read in Matthew that, <clears throat> that the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, he was a son of somebody. He seemed like he was a son of Joseph, but he was really a son of God. But he was born in Mary and Joseph's family. John, who does not tell a birth story of Jesus, he says something else. And he says in verse 14 of chapter 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was flesh. You are flesh. Jesus had flesh like we do. And in Acts 7, Stephen being stoned to death. And before he was knocked out for good, he said, Behold, I see the heavens open." and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He recognized Jesus as a man, a son of man. And so Jesus is written about as a man. But then thirdly, Jesus had a lot of things that we have in common with him. He had human feelings and emotions. We read in Matthew 4, verse 8, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was, if you fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, I would be too. I don't even think I'd be alive. But he was hungry. Jesus felt hunger. Read in another place. John 4, verse 6, Jesus wearied as he was from his journey. He got tired. If he had to walk a long distance, he got tired. He was weary, just like we would be. And then we read that uh, he, was, he was on the cross. And as he was hanging there, one of the things that he said, I thirst. He was thirsty. Even the woman at the well. He's sitting there and this woman comes up with her bucket and was going to get some water. And Jesus said, uh, can you give me a little cup of water? Jesus was thirsty. Jesus knew what his mission was going to be on this earth. He knew that he was going to die. And every so often he told the disciples... As he said in Luke 12, verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great my distress is until it is accomplished. Jesus was distressed in his humanness that he was going to his death. We read that Hebrews, that Jesus was tempted just as we are. 
We read in John 11, 20, 35, Jesus wept. His friend Lazarus had died. And then he turned around and he raised Lazarus from his death. But before that, Jesus wept. Just like we weep when some loved one passes away. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was in agony when he prayed to God, his Father, so much so that the sweat was pouring off of him. And so Jesus was a man. He felt the same emotions that we feel. But then Jesus, like every other person, died. Jesus yielded up his spirit. Just like every single human being. But then, Jesus rose from the death and he appeared to his disciples. And one time when he appeared to his disciples, he said, look, I'm not a ghost. I'm not just a vision. And in Luke 24, 39, he says, See my hands, see my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and blood, as you can see that I have. And Jesus even ate something to prove that he was a real person, that he was human. He just was the only human anyone has ever heard of who was resurrected from the dead. Jesus was fully human. Jesus came to earth with a mission. His mission was to reconcile sinners to the holy God. We read in, we read in the Bible this this verse, and this verse I think almost everybody knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that's Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. Jesus came for people. He was a human. He sympathized with humans. He wanted humans to join him in eternal life. God sent him here to do that. But it was more than just being human. Humans are sick. Humans are blurry and fuzzy. They're not very good images of God, are they? They are filled with sin. We read in Colossians 1, verse 19, And you, Paul writes, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, that is Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
In Jesus' death, he took your guilt, he took your sin upon himself so that he could take you now a true image of God, a true human being, and present you before God the Father. Jesus had to be a human. He had to be a man. He couldn't do it any other way. This is what the Godhead had determined to do, was to show that Jesus wanted to save people. We are people. You are in need of salvation. Jesus will bring you to God the Father. You can spend eternity with him. That's why Jesus was here. That's what Jesus did for us. We read in Ephesians 2 verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Are you far off today? Are you still fuzzy and blurry as an image of God? Are you going to be restored by the blood of Jesus Christ? If your answer is yes, Jesus wants to work in you. We read that by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, but by one man, Jesus Christ, his obedience, the many will be made righteous. Let's thank God that he was a human being just like we are.